Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. to be back with you. Uh, And concerning uh, what we needed, felt we needed to do two weeks ago and suspend services like we did, just just know that kind of stuff. That is uh, something we do not take lightly, something that causes us great grief. Um, You know, my understanding of the Lord's Day, uh, uh, it is a high day of worship. You know, regardless of where we are, you're hiking the Appalachian Trail, whatever, you worship every day. It's a principle revealed in scripture. We worship every day, morning and evening, but the Lord's day is a high day of worship and we are to assemble, we are to gather, if at all possible and forego excuses that we can. It grieves us if there's something comes about, we feel so serious that we need to suspend like we did. I hope it's not a a decade before we have to do something like that again. Well, Romans chapter 10, Verses 14 and 15 is what we are considering today, Um, but we're going to back up to verse 13 for the sake of context and and read down because there is a way that the text flows into uh, then coming to 14 and 15. So verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you. Lord, in in this age, when we are not yet able to see your face, Lord, you've given us your word. We meet with you when we gather together and seek your face through the scriptures that you have revealed. And so, Lord, what we ask is that you will show us your glory. We ask, O God, that you will feed us from your truth. We pray that you will teach us, instruct us, and then bring the miracles that your word affects, transformation, sanctification, for any in the room that has not yet turned to Christ to be saved. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant a spirit of repentance, a a desire uh, to, to be right with you, to draw them. So Father, we pray, accomplish your great purposes and we pray that this would be a time with great fruit. We pray for our our little ones in this next room. Please, oh God, awaken them to the knowledge of the gospel and trust in Jesus. So Lord, we pray, use this time and we ask God that with these truths we're gonna consider, we pray, oh Lord, sincerely that you will stir our hearts to have a yearning desire to obey and work and sweat and labor and serve and preach your gospel to be useful in this world. So Lord, have mercy on this time. Help me in my thoughts, my heart, my mouth. Bless us as we worship in the receiving of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week on... October the 6th that marked the anniversary 
of William Tyndale's gruesome death back in 1536. So that actually marks the 485th anniversary. Um, William Tyndale, uh, who, who I have told you about, but I think it may have been like five years now or so. William Tyndale is, is the man most responsible, not the only one, but most responsible for the English translations of the Bible that you hold in your hands. It's an appropriate month for us to talk about these things, October being uh, the, the Reformation month, the, the month that we think about these kinds of things. So to back up a little bit and kind of set a little bit of the scene, in 1516, for the first time in, in history, the Greek New Testament um, became widely published. The, the reason why is, is because the new invention, the Gutenberg printing press, uh, made it possible for uh, publications to go widespread. And so for the first time in, in Europe's history, the Greek New Testament becomes widely available. And what that sparked was something um, no less than revolutionary. Because the educated, you know, you had to know Greek, but throughout Europe began to be able to read the Bible in the original language. And you might be thinking, well, you know, why was that such a big deal? Well, bear in mind, um, the Bible was not available in the common language of the peoples. Wasn't available in German, wasn't available in Swedish, wasn't available in English. The only translation that existed was the Latin translation, what's called the Latin Vulgate. And I'm going to bring up a couple things this morning that, you know, I'm, I'm not intending to try to be cruel or mean. I'm just telling you historical facts. Here's a reality about the Latin Vulgate. It had mistranslated the Bible and intentionally so in about seven different significant places, the kinds of things that would change the meaning of the text. So, so an example where the New Testament says, repent and you will be saved, the Latin Vulgate had translated it to say, do penance and you will be saved. And guys, the difference between those two things just could not be bigger. Repentance is a heart response of turning to God. This is a part of turning to God in faith. Do penance. Penance is something that was invented by men. Penance is the whole confess your sins to a priest and the, and the priest pronounces te absolvo, I absolve you. Now go say a certain number of prayers and then you will be forgiven. The difference between these two things could not be bigger. So when across Europe, the, the, the educated, and this included priests, bishops, cardinals, were able to read the Bible in the original language, it was shocking. And many of them were downright outraged. 1516, Greek New Testament is made available. 1517, Martin Luther is nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And, and what then began to happen with uh, both the, the, the availability of the scriptures and then the Reformation beginning, Reformation began to break out across Europe, but it did not immediately break out in the place that it would eventually burn like wildfire for 150 solid years. England, Scotland, and Wales. 
there was something that would need to happen before the, the, the tender would be ignited there. And that something was William Tyndale. Tyndale comes to faith in Christ and in his gospel zeal and in the providence of God, what God had done to create Tyndale and his personality and gifts and the education that God gave him, Tyndale wanted his countrymen to be able to read the Bible themselves. Tyndale wanted uh, to translate the Bible into English from the original languages. Now that had never been done before. Now to back up a little bit, the Bible had been translated once into English, but it had been done so not from the original languages, but from the Latin Vulgate, which, which means, okay, that the errors then got translated into English. The man who did that was another name from history you should remember, and his name was John Wycliffe. Now, another thing happening in the midst of these things. The Catholic Church launched the Inquisition in which they set out to brutally torture and murder those that they condemned as heretics and high on the list of those that they went after were Bible translators. They did not want the Bible in the language of the people. John Wycliffe lived and died, died a natural death. And then afterwards the inquisition was uh, established. One of the things that happened is they went back and they dug up Wycliffe's bones and desecrated them and burned them. So as to, uh, you know, just make this message clear here, this is what will be done to any who attempts this. And so I tell you that to say that when Tyndale set out to do the work of translation, he knew what he was doing. He knew the cost. He knew the risk. But his heart burned with a yearning for the gospel to be understood. So Tyndale left England, went into hiding to do the work of translating. He was eventually hunted down, betrayed by someone he trusted, and of course, there was a process of things that happened. But when they finally put him to death, they tied a leather strap around his head, twisted it until his skull crushed, and then they tied him to a stake and burned him. From an earthly perspective, that sounds tragic. Don't feel sorry for William Tyndale. The man rejoices before the throne of God right now, and great is his reward. But his work has been called by scholars a work of literary genius. You know, we, we throw the word genius around a lot. We throw it around too much. The word actually does apply to certain special individuals. William Tyndale's work of translating the Bible is one of those works from history that is a work of literary uh, genius. You know, we, we often don't realize the amount of effort uh, that is put into the tedious, painstaking work of, of pouring himself out, painstakingly beating his head against a table to, to, to squeeze out every drop of mental capacity for the right word, the best word. How do you form a sentence that makes sense in English coming from the Hebrew? Let there be light. That's Tyndale. 
okay? Uh, and all this work. Tyndale's work would eventually be picked up by those who compiled the King James version of the Bible. And in those sections that Tyndale had translated, about nine tenths of the language is Tyndale. So the Bibles you hold in your lap right now still have Tyndale language, let there be light, and, and a thousand other verses that are just straight from him. This exhaustive toil that went into this is just amazing. But here's why I tell you the story today and in relation to this text. It does fit pretty nicely with the whole concept of how will they hear unless someone tells them? But that, that's actually not the point that I'm wanting to highlight and focus on this morning and what we're considering from the text today. It is this. A point that biographers have specifically pointed out about Tyndale is that Tyndale did not fall to what is a very common misunderstanding about the Christian life and in relation to the sovereignty of God. This common misunderstanding is that if something is God's will, then it will come about automatically. It'll come about easily. That it'll just happen. Sometimes people can get confused in their thinking and, and develop this kind of thought that, that thinks, well, if God has ordained something, well then, you know, it's just gonna happen. No need for me to fret myself. No need for me to, you know, spill sweat and blood. No need for me to go through painstaking toil. Tyndale did not buy into that error. It's been pointed out that Tyndale's literary education, his preparation leading up to when he would do this great work was just incredibly intense. Uh, Tyndale once had an assignment in his education where they were, they were told to take one sentence and the sentence was, your letter has delighted me very much. And they had to rewrite it 150 different ways. That kind of preparation led him to the day that he was able to do this work of the natural talent that God gave him matched with intense preparation and training, which then led to the opportunity that he had to serve the kingdom of God and squeeze out all of the potential out of his mind. And because of it, Christian, he's influenced your life more than you can imagine. Not only in the fact that you hold copies of God's word in your laps, which that would be enough, but also that his work of translating the English Bible led to the Reformation spreading like wildfire in England, which led to the Puritans, led to the Separatists, led to Presbyterianism led to Baptist separatists who left England, came to this land, planted churches, spread the gospel, did missions amongst the American Indians, uh, and, and led to the first and second great awakenings, and even specifically influenced the creation and adoption of the first amendment of this constitution. Had there been no William Tyndale, who knows how history would have turned out? God knows those kinds of things, but in the providence of God, God worked through the sweat, effort, and labor of a man. This is how God works. And we must be careful that we not fall 
to misunderstandings of God's sovereignty so that we sit back and don't labor. Tyndale's life illustrates we must not assume that if something is God's will, that it will come about automatically, easily, without intense labor on our part, that we can sort of just sit back and it'll just happen. The relationship between God's purposes, God's will, God's plans, God's sovereignty and our actions, our decisions, our labor, the relationship is complex. It's not easy. We like everything to be neat and tidy and simple. <laughs> and just the world is not that way. It's a complex world. And these two realities, these two truths that God is sovereign and we are responsible and accountable and our decisions matter and our prayers are used. How all of this works, it's, it's difficult to get our minds around it and there's mystery. But we need to have some clarity in these things because I, I, I want to tell you this from the beginning. Misunderstandings about how these two things exist at the same time and relate to one another, they can wreck your life. I have known Christians waste their life, waste their lives thinking that it's all just going to come about without effort. And so this morning, I want us to consider uh, this point from chapter 10. We're ready for the third point of chapter 10. This third division of the text is verses 14 and 15. And I'm calling this point the human side of salvation the human side of salvation. And I'm going to take it in two parts. Next week, we're going to spend more time in the argument that is built and talk about the preaching of the gospel and what does it mean to send out and work, work through the series and the progress of logic, the logical argument that he makes there. But this week, I'm taking just the most basic truth that is there. The human responsibility for us to engage in obedience and service. And we're just going to meditate on that one thing today. So just expounding and thinking through this one. I'm going to do it um, uh, in two parts today. The first part, I'm going I'm to talk a little bit technically. We'll kind of think a little bit abstractly um, about the two doctrines side by side. And then we're going to move to the practical of, of what does this mean for certain areas of our lives. So let me start with the technical and then we'll move to the practical. The text makes the case that if we don't tell the gospel and if we do not send out those who do, then souls will not hear the gospel. Souls will not be saved. So there is a sense in which the great commission Okay, the Great Commission is Jesus' command to us to go make disciples, tell the gospel as souls are saved. They, they are added to the kingdom. Jesus builds his church. There is a sense in which the Great Commission depends on us and our labor. Now, saying that sometimes makes people uncomfortable. Well, well, well pastor, don't we believe that God is sovereign? Well, yes. In Romans 9, we saw that it all ultimately flows from God. But chapter 10 is showing things from the perspective of the earth. 
Chapter nine is showing the perspective of heaven looking down. Chapter 10 is us looking around with our boots on the ground and the reality that we have a role to play in this. So it's a true statement. Follow this with me. God does not need us. He doesn't need us. Okay, the, the one who created the cosmos by speaking and Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power and the air that you are breathing into your lungs right now, the energy that you have is all coming from God. He's sustaining your breath right now. That God doesn't need you. Like, it's not like God's really trying, but you know, he needs our help. And, it, and if we hadn't given a certain strength and effort, he was like, oh man, I almost didn't get it done. That's not how this works. God doesn't need us. But if we stopped there, there are some misunderstandings we could come to. Because while God does not need us, God has chosen that the way he is going to work in this world is by using people, by using us. God has chosen that the way he's going to accomplish his purposes, namely the salvation of souls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, the establishing of his kingdom, the way he's going to do that is not just from miraculous lightning bolts from heaven. A lot of times that's what we want. Instead, God has chosen that he's going to use creatures that he made in his image who have wills, hearts, feelings, emotions, who make decisions and our decisions are real and we are to pray and participate and share the gospel. God has chosen to use us and our works and our effort. He's decided to work through our efforts. Jesus said, I will build my church. Ultimately, it is God. But the book of Acts is the account of Jesus building his church by using his people. And if Peter would be disobedient and not preach the gospel, then that means the people would not hear. God has chosen to use these means. God has chosen to use us. And so, it, use us. And so it's specifically that part that we're spending time on today. I, I, I've mentioned the fact that Romans 10, a chapter that preaches human responsibility and our role to play in this, following chapter 9, the chapter that preaches the sovereignty of God and salvation, these two chapters coming uh, consecutively is just more helpful than we can imagine. Chapters 9 and 10 are meant to, to join hands together to give us an understanding of how this world works. Because it's helping us understand missions, evangelism, and prayer, and obedience, and things like that. But it, it's more than that. It's how the world functions, how it operates. Before the world was made, God decreed a plan uh, for the history of this world, and that included those that he would save. But it is possible that that can create some confusion in our minds. So there is the potential danger and this is something that, that has come up. This is one of the errors from history. So another reason you study church history, so you can look back and see errors and see where we stand in relation to these things. An error that some have come to in history is a place of fatalism. 
The idea that if God has ordained something, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. What God ordained is just going to come about. So, you know, no, no reason for me to fret myself. No reason to go crazy about sacrificing or obedience, these kinds of things. We, we call that fatalism. The idea that your actions don't matter because it's all just destined. By the way, fatalism does not only exist um, within, uh, with, within religion and such. There's atheistic fatalism and such that exists as well. There's secular fatalism. But God created us humans in his image with wills. The capacity to make decisions. Our decisions are real. If you have turned to Christ, then we know that ultimately you turned to Christ because God came to you. But the Bible shows you chose Jesus. You chose to become a Christian. We shouldn't be afraid to use that kind of language. What the Bible teaches is that God is sovereign and we really make decisions and our actions matter. It, but it's in how these two realities exist at the same time and their relationship to one another that is the great mystery. But you know, th this is a world that's filled with mysteries. We, we like everything to be neat, tidy, simple, and easy, but that, that's just not reality. I, I was talking with a doctor just this past week and the, the doctor mentioned to me that medical, you know, modern medicine still doesn't even understand how aspirin does what it does. <laughs> there are mysteries in this world. They just know that it does happen this way. And so we have to operate in light of that. We don't like that though. We don't like paradoxes and I learned a new word this week, antinomies, okay? Antinomy, um, there's a helpful little book, let me tell you. Uh, if this whole subject is the kind of thing that's maybe tied you in knots and you need some more clarity on this, J.I. Packer wrote a helpful little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in, in that book, he, he uses uh, an illustration, an antinomy is when there are two facts, two realities that side by side, they seem like a contradiction. They seem like it, but they're not. Uh, Packer uses the illustration that uh, uh, there's a mystery of antinomy in regard to light. Th that uh, modern physicists acknowledge that light consists of particles and light consists of waves. And how the, it can exist in those two ways at the same time seems like a contradiction. So in other words, if they didn't, hadn't proven this and it was just explained, they would have said it's a contradiction because they can't understand how, the, how light can consist in the both ways at the same time, but they only know that it does. So modern physicist has to say, we don't know how it can, these two can exist at the same time. We don't know the relationship between these two things. We only know that it does, and so we must operate accordingly. Well, well, Christian, the biblical Christian, we have to say God is sovereign and he has predestined things. And at the same time, your actions matter. You need to pray. If you don't pray, you will not receive. If you do pray, if you work hard, there will be more fruit. How do these two things exist at the same time? That's the mystery. Uh, our job is not to understand every mystery, the ones that are outside of our grasp, but we are to live by faith, which means trusting what God has said. Uh, these two things are not in contradiction. 
there is a way that they relate with one another. Charles Spurgeon was once asked by somebody, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And Spurgeon responded, it's not my job to reconcile friends. So in other words, they're not an enemy with each other. They're not opposed, they're not at contradiction. How it all exists, it's a mystery, but we are to operate uh, with both of these uh, as true. So of course, there are errors that we could come to in light of these things. So let's talk about some of the errors and we'll, we'll, we'll tell you what some of the names are. One error in trying to understand these things is just to, you know, here's the easier, just deny one of them. Just deny that one of them even exists. So one error is to deny the truth of Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and the many other places that teach predestination, teach the doctrine of election. So that would be Arminianism, to deny the doctrine of election, that is Arminianism. On the other side, uh, from history, there have been some who believed Romans 9, the doctrine of election, but then they either just did not believe or ignored Romans 10 and the many other places that show human responsibility. And this is what we refer to as hyper-Calvinism. So Calvinism is to believe the doctrine of election. There's some other truths as well, but the main one is election. Hyper-Calvinism is then to believe election, but deny, ignore human responsibility. And so hyper-Calvinism ha has held the view, you know, concerning things like prayer. Well, you know, prayer, prayer doesn't really matter. You know, God's predestined everything anyway. My prayers aren't gonna change any of that, so no reason to pray. And they've sort of solved the purpose of prayers more along the lines of, you know, it's just about spending time with God. Hyper-Calvinists from history, and by the way, there was a day that hyper-Calvinism was really popular. I'll address some of that in a bit. But they would look towards evangelistic efforts and they would say, well, you know, God's predestined who he's going to save, so he'll do it. There's no reason for us to get bent out of shape about doing missions or doing any of these kinds of things. You know, our efforts won't change any of that. Um, there's a man from history, another good, good Baptist you need to know, William Carey. William Carey uh, was a man who lived during the heyday of hyper-Calvinism. Um, we call him the father of the modern missionary movement, the father of modern missions. And he lived in a day when there was actually a debate. This was a real debate that took place between Christians. Should we use means to reach the lost? Now by means, what that's referring to is doing something <laughs> like should you do a vacation Bible school should you go knock on your neighbor's door and 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 ask to have lunch with them to talk about the Bible should you actually go try to reach lost people with the gospel uh, we wonder how in the world could that even be a debate Hyper-Calvinism was the air that they breathed. William Carey came to a, a minister's meeting one time in order to try to stir them up to do missions. He, he eventually would leave America and go do missions. And as he was trying to rally those pastors to go do this, there came a point where one of the pastors stood up and yelled at William Carey and said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. In that day, Nearly all Baptists were Calvinists. <laughs> that seems like a confusing day. Nearly all Baptists were Calvinists and hyper-Calvinism was actually the error of their day. That confuses us because in our day, we have a different error. We have an error the other direction. In our day, 
the air that we breathe is pragmatism. So pragmatism, not just a religious word, it's used in the business world and things as well. Pragmatism is the idea that the ends justifies the means. So, so what that means is it doesn't matter what you do so long as you accomplish the end goal. If having dancing showgirls at church and a staff full of professional actors who give weekly performances, if that gets people to church, then that's what we're going to do. We have the end goal. It doesn't matter how we get there. That is obviously an error. That's pragmatism. It's on the other side. So you have two extremes, hyper-Calvinism and pragmatism. What is needed is biblical Christianity. What is needed is a right understanding of how Romans 9 and Romans 10 join together and we live in light of both of them. But hyper-Calvinism regarded all of this as God's predestined so it doesn't matter what we do. The Bible teaches both that God is sovereign and that our actions matter and we are to work. Sometimes the Bible shows this in even the same verse. Both doctrines in the same verse. Luke 22, 22. For indeed, the son of man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Do you see both doctrines there? It had been determined by the father that Jesus would be betrayed. And yet Judas is responsible because Judas made the decision Judas wanted to do this. Judas's decision was real. He wasn't a robot. He wasn't forced. It was a real decision. How does all that happen? That's the part we don't understand, but both truths are true. First Corinthians 15, 10. I've shared this one a bunch of times with you. This is Paul speaking, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You see both doctrines there. Okay. Why did Paul accomplish what he did? The grace of God working with me. But yet at the same time, Paul, not in arrogance, but just in understanding of the world, he also recognized I worked hard. God's grace did not prove vain to me. Now, I take that to mean that there is a sense in which the grace of God can prove vain. Now, not in the ultimate secret will of God's sense, in the ultimate secret will of God, God determined that the Ninevites would repent. But in the revealed will of God, there is a sense in which the grace of God can prove vain. There's a sense in which we can miss opportunities and miss callings and disobey. Those verses are a, re- are a rebuke both to pragmatists and to hyper-Calvinists. All right, now let's move to the practical. Let me bring up s- several specific matters that f- things could get confusing in our minds. And so let's try to think through with some clarity. Let me, let me bring up four areas, four areas where our, our minds can tie itself into knots, but we need to have some clarity. So here's the first one, the decision to follow Christ. Sometimes people who believe in predestination become afraid to use certain language that they shouldn't be afraid to use. It's, it's biblical language. So for instance, it is not wrong to tell a lost person, you need to decide to follow Christ. Now, sometimes 
You know, if you may remember the early, remember back to whenever you first learned predestination and it messed you up and you couldn't sleep at night and you're wrestling with all these things. Remember that? Okay. Um, back in those days, we can get to where we're, we're sort of afraid to use language like somebody deciding to become a Christian. We're like, well, he didn't decide. God's the one who did it. Ultimately, it is from God. But what is God doing? He is working in our wills. He is working to draw us to himself. And the scripture will use the language of decision and, and you need to repent and believe and be saved. The apostles, whenever they would preach to the crowds, they did not say things like, well, God is predestined who will be saved. He's chosen some of you and others you are not. If you're chosen, then he'll convert you. And if you're not, nothing you can do. They never said things like that. Instead, what did they say? They preached to the crowds and they told them what to do. Repent and believe. Jesus said, count the cost. Consider whether or not you want to do this. Deliberate within yourself. Decide to follow. I know, I know of a father who had some misunderstandings in how all of this works. And, and because of his misunderstanding, he would never just tell his children how to be saved and, and call them to do it. So instead of pleading with his children in, in family Bible study and things like this, of just tell them, come to Jesus and be saved, he would instead sort of say things like, you know, if you are chosen then the day will come when you are born again. You, you will be converted. And so his children approached the gospel along the lines of, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to live my life. And if God pleases, one day he will convert me. And it really messed with their minds. It, it really created some stumbling blocks to them turning to Jesus. And so we need to understand God in the Bible says to the lost person. So, you know, we say to you, if you have never turned to Christ, come to Jesus and be saved. Turn your heart to Christ, place your faith in him, call out to him and you will be saved. When hyper Calvinism was really popular and in its heyday, there was actually a debate over whether or not it should be a requirement that pastors be converted. Now, again, you hear that. And we're just like, how could that even be a discussion? But think about it. They approached it from the perspective of, well, he can't help it if he's not saved. So there would be pastors who stood up and preached on, on Sundays and they would just openly admit to the congregation, the Lord has not converted me yet. And they acted like I can't help this. The Lord has not converted me yet. And do you see how everything gets skewed when we misunderstand the Bible? Either direction we go of error, we will come to craziness. You know, that sounds insane to us. But let me tell you this. Today, we're equally insane. Not mean like true vine specifically. Okay. But I mean like our day Christianity, it's equally insane. It's just insane. The other direction. Can you imagine what later generations are going to look back on our day and think? 
okay? Girls dressed in skimpy attire swinging from trapezes in the worship room of a church building. That's a real thing in some churches down in Florida. Can you imagine what later generations are gonna think of that kind of nonsense? We look back at hyper-Calvinism and see the error, but understand others will look at our day and see the error in the opposite direction. What is needed is biblical Christianity. So secondly, second area, evangelism. Verses 14 and 15 make the case that if we don't work, if we don't tell, people won't hear and people won't be saved. Never, ever, Christian, let yourself think, well, God will save people whether I participate or not. The knowledge of God's sovereignty is meant to inspire our efforts and not demotivate. If you find your heart demotivated by knowing that God is sovereign, there is a misunderstanding. Nobody believed in the sovereignty of God more than Paul. And nobody worked harder than Paul. Because Paul carried the idea in his heart when he goes into a city, I know the gospel will be effective. Like the gospel will be successful. We know that when we go and labor, there will be fruit. And the more we labor, the more fruit there will come. But what it does is it gives us this understanding. Listen, we win. We don't fail. If you are in Christ and striving to obey him, you cannot fail. If we engage in the work of the gospel, then, then God will bring fruit. God will bring results. We don't know what he'll do. We don't know what he'll do in this town, in this place, and through this church. But we know, engage in the work of the gospel, and there will be fruit. The sovereignty of God is meant to inspire us. And then we say, and we get to be a part of it. We get to do this. If I had more time, I'd take us to 2 Timothy 2.10 and 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 19 through 27, if you want to jot those down. We need to understand, we need to reject all manipulative practices, you know, like girls swinging from trapezes. We need to eliminate all manipulative practices. But we also need to know that God wants us to work to persuade people and plead with them. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the language of winning people and spending years praying for people and, and working to convince people. We are to spend time trying to help people overcome their objections and their mental misunderstandings to come. The reason why that's important to know is, again, in confusion, sometimes the idea can kind of come of like, well, you know, if God's going to save them, he's just going to save them. You know, no need for me to do work of persuading them. If they don't believe the first time I tell them, well, then maybe they're just not called. We're not to think like that. We're to work to persuade and plead and win and do apologetics. Um, in, in Acts 18, 4, speaking of Paul, it says, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. We must not think fatalistically. Parents, do not think fatalistically towards your children. Do not let yourselves off the hook of saying things like, well, you know, if God has chosen him, then he'll save him. And otherwise he won't. I'm just going to take him to church and, and just trust God. That we're never shown to think like that in the Bible. We are shown to work and work 
and pour ourselves out and, and plead with our children and engage in every means and every method that is consistent with the Bible, every means that we can think of. And then when we've exhausted ourselves, look for more and pray for more. Work daily, have conversations, do catechisms, have family worship, read books, pray and pray and pray and fast. Listen to podcasts, take them to the Creation Museum, pray and pray and pray some more. We must not let ourselves off the hook of work by just saying, God's sovereign, I'm sure he'll take care of it. God means for you to pour yourself out, laboring to win your children to salvation in Christ and others. Third area, prayer. Hyper-Calvinism says... Well, God is sovereign, so he already knows what I need, so there's no sense in bringing it up. And God has already ordained what's going to happen, so prayer doesn't really do anything. I've heard that spoken, unfortunately, even from a pastor. Prayer doesn't really do anything. It's just more about spending time with God. Well, it is true that one of the benefits of prayer is communion with God, but that is not its chief purpose. The Bible tells us what the chief purpose is. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. The chief purpose of prayer is there are graces and gifts that you and I need. And he gave us an avenue to be able to ask for them. And this is the purpose of God. Jesus said, ask and seek and knock. Whoever seeks, excuse me, whoever asks will receive. Whoever seeks will find. Whoever knocks, it will be open to him. Listen, if we do not pray, there are thousands upon thousands of graces that we will not receive. And the more we pray, the more we will receive. God has ordained that sometimes a person has to pray for 40 years before God answers it with a yes. It might be that you are to pray till you die for your children to be saved. And it might be that the very last prayer was the one that was needed. Did you know that the Bible has numerous examples of times when God wanted to do something or give something, but he wouldn't until people prayed. This comes up numerous times. Job 42, eight, God said to Job's friends that he would forgive them, but not until Job prayed for them. You know, isn't that interesting? Job was, God said he would do this, but not until Job prayed. With Elijah, Elijah prayed that it would not rain. He prayed for drought. God stirred him to pray for that. It went three and a half years. And then when it was time that God wanted to send rain again, Elijah's job was to pray. And so Elijah prayed. And he sent his servant to go check to see if it's raining. Gehazi comes back. It's not raining. What does Elijah do? He bows his head and he prays again. He sends his servant. Is it raining yet? Servant comes back. It's not raining yet. What does Elijah do? He bows his head and he keeps praying. This happened over and over again. Think about this. There's a principle that is shown there in that illustration. Okay. God wanted to do something, but it wasn't going to happen until people prayed. But even then we can't just think, oh, well, you know, you just, you just ask one time and then if it's ordained, then it'll come. No, the world is more complex than that. Do you remember the parable of the importunate widow? Jesus taught us to pray and ask and ask and ask and ask over and over and over again. Uh, prayer is described as work in the Bible. 
It is described that we are helping people when we pray. So, so in other words, that's important because it's not just how certain charismatics tell us that prayer works. So sometimes certain charismatics give the idea that, you know, you ask one time and then you believe that you're going to get it. Don't you pray over and over again. You're insulting God. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are helping people when we pray. Paul says uh, to the believers that he would write to, you're helping me by your prayers. So when we as a church were praying for Colette in the hospital, you know, we didn't just have one person designate one person. You pray and ask one time and now we're done. No, what, what did we do? We tried to rally lots of people to be praying because this adds weight to our prayers. Uh, and, and when she would have a good day and made some progress, we said, you know, keep it going. It's working. And when she would go backwards, we, we rallied everybody. Pray more. You know, why? Because that's how this works. We cannot think fatalistically regarding prayer. If you do not ask, you will not receive. And then fourth area, personal obedience. Now, with the things I've brought up thus far, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with those things, evangelism, prayer, and things like that. Hopefully I've not like introduced <laughs> ideas to your mind that now you're going to struggle with. Uh, but I don't know if you've ever wrestled with these mysteries before, but I can tell you that this one, this one, is the heaviest. This is the one that we hear the most misunderstanding. And ironically, this one is misunderstood oftentimes by those who deny the doctrine of election and things as well. A Christian might have a great burden to foster hurting children, but then see how much work it would be. And, uh, you know, we just bought another car and we got this big, got this big payment and it would be really inconvenient. So, you know, one way or the other, God will take care of those kids. And they let themselves off the hook. Christian, you need to know it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work. This world doesn't work like that. It's more complex than that. Well, we can't just say concerning hungry people in the world, you know, God, God will take care of those people. You know, I got a great big house payment. That would be really inconvenient. God understands. We cannot let ourselves off the hook. Do you know what happens if we don't foster hurting children? They're not cared for. Do you know what happens if we don't give to the hungry? They stay hungry. We cannot just fatalistically say things like God, God will take care of them. We are to engage. We are to work. I went to Bible college and so spent you know, years around hundreds of young men studying for ministry. And so saw a lot of scenarios and a whole lot of those scenarios were encouraging. And you can imagine there were also some not so great of examples. And there were times where this very misunderstanding would just ruin a young man's life. And so let me kind of do a conglomeration of several stories and add to it a little bit to clarify the illustrations. You might think of this as more like based on a true story rather than every single detail, but let me just use it as an illustration here. Suppose a young man believes he's called to ministry. And, and from my understanding of how this works, I believe that he can be just because you're called in the revealed will of God doesn't mean, doesn't guarantee that we will obey as, as I'm trying to illustrate here. But this young man heads off to Bible college, and while he's there, though, he's lazy. 
He's negligent in his studies. He doesn't work hard. He passes Greek with a D. He fails his hermeneutics class. But he assures himself, you know, I, I did the best I could. He didn't. He was negligent the whole year, but then he worked really hard the night before the final. But he assured himself, I've, I've done the best I could. While he's at school, he doesn't work a job because he says, it sounds really spiritual when he says it, God will provide. I trust God. God will find a way. And so a couple of years in, he runs out of money. He's failed some classes that he's going to have to retake. And so he decides to leave school. He goes back home and the people at his home church, they ask, well, you know, well, what happened? I thought you were studying for ministry. And he says something like, well, you know, things just didn't work out right now. But Romans 8, 28, God's working everything for good. You know, I just, I just trust God. One of these days, it's all going to come together and all the timing, you know, we can't rush God's timing. We got to rely on his timing and not ours and all kinds of spiritual sounding things. He gets some random job. A decade passes. And all through the decade, he's always telling people that he's called to ministry. And one of these days, he's going to go back to school. He's going to do all these things. Finally, after about a decade, he decides, well, it's, it's time. I better just go find a church. And so he interviews with a church and he gets hired. But these last 10 years, he's treated his spiritual disciplines about like he treated his education, which is to say, negligently. He's not been deep in the word. He's not been battling his flesh with intensity. So when he becomes a pastor, it does not go well. In fact, it goes terribly. In a couple few years in, the conflict within the church becomes so great that he sees he needs to quit. So he quits and he goes back to his home church and people ask, well, what happened? I thought you were going to do ministry. And he talks about how terrible the people were. <laughs> they wouldn't follow my leadership. But then Romans 8, 28, though, you know, this is just, this is all part of God's plan. He's working all things for good. So one of these days, it's, it's all going to come together. It's all going to, the right opportunity is going to all come together and it's all going to work out. Well, here, here's why I tell the story. Listen, Christian, Romans 8, 28 is true. Praise God. But it can be misused. It can be used as an excuse. The sovereignty of God can be used as an excuse to justify disobedience laziness, negligence, and missed opportunities. In this world that God made under the rule of his sovereignty, we are to work. We are to work hard. We are called to pray and obey and labor. And listen, sweat, sweat. We are to toil. We are to struggle. And our struggle fits into all of this. One of the principles that I want to say in light of all of this is never think that big and important opportunities uh, and ways to serve God are just going to fall into your lap if you do not prepare and seek to honor God. Now, I do believe for those who work hard to prepare God opens doors. Oftentimes people are just asked if they'll come do some ministry. The William Tyndales of the world who work hard to prepare the moment a big opportunity comes. God never, God never waste a fit stone. God is never going to let somebody that, that he has prepared and has trained to go unused. 
But we cannot think that that means I'm just going to sit back, spend my evenings watching TV, and one of these days, this wonderful ministry is going to fall in my lap and I'm going to be awesome at it. That's not the way the world works. Christian, we are to work. We are to pray. We are to sweat. We are to sacrifice. We are to tell. We are to plead, plead with the lost. Last week, I heard Paul Washer use this illustration. A young man heard an old violinist play, and it was remarkable. And the young man said to the violinist, I'd give anything if I could play like you. And the old violinist replied, young man, you don't understand. I have given everything to play like this. Christian, does your theology have room for that kind of understanding? It needs to. It needs to. God is sovereign. But you and I are called to work. William Tyndale, yes, had remarkable natural linguistic talent, but he matched it with hard work. And his great opportunity to serve the kingdom of God came. Your understanding of the sovereignty of God must have room for a robust theology of sweat. So look back to verse 14 quickly. How will they hear if you do not tell them? And church, if we do not do the work of raising up from amongst ourselves, uh, us working and us discipling our children, if we do not do the work of raising them up to send them out, then how will the nations hear? And the answer is they will not. You and I have a role to play in this. There is a way in which certain amount of work depends on us. There is work to be done. Let's put our hands to the plow and engage in it. And if you have never turned to Christ, God invites you. Count the cost. Weigh. Weigh the decision. And turn to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Call out to him. Confess your faith. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray and then I'll have one more announcement for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace. Lord, we pray that you will use the truths of this text to call us into greater service. Call us to greater labor, greater sacrifice, greater toil. And I pray that we'll smile and rejoice as we do it, O oh God. That, Lord, we will delight to get to have a role to play in this great work of your kingdom. Use us, God, we ask. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.